theology leads to practice. Yep. And the practice of Christians being involved in adopting actual children comes as a result of our theology. Mm-hmm. So this is a great example of how very incredibly practical theology is and how theology leads to practical actions. Welcome to season two of the Theology for the People podcast. Last year, I started this podcast really at the urging of two of my friends, Ocean and Aaron, who were separate from each other, both encouraging me to start a podcast. I already had the website, which um, was called The Longmont Pastor. That was my blog. I then went and changed the name of the blog to Theology for the People to match the podcast. And it was kind of a wild ride that first season. I was figuring it out and I was just so amazed at the response to the podcast. Just as I watched the analytics and how many people were downloading and listening and tuning in, it just went way beyond any expectations I had. And so this year I'm really excited and hopefully improving the podcast a little bit, just being more intentional about providing you with really good conversations, really high quality. And this first episode this year is talking with a good friend of mine named Nate Medlong on the topic of adoption. What you might not know about me is that I do have an adopted son. And Nate has fostered and adopted several kids. And so this is something that's really close to my heart. And I know it's close to his. I really hope that whether or not you have adoption as part of your life story, you'll really consider and listen to this episode because this is a topic that shows how theology is so incredibly practical and one of the practical outworkings of it. You know, Christians, sometimes we can be hard on on ourselves and other people can also be hard on us and sometimes deservedly so. But you know what? This is one of those areas where we can say that the practical outworking of the gospel has had real impact on the world and on people's lives in a positive way. So I really hope you'll enjoy this conversation and I'll have a message for you at the end as well. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is the podcast where we discuss theological topics and we try to make them applicable and show you how theology really, where the rubber meets the road, how practical it is for our lives today. My name is Pastor Nick Cady and I am joined by Pastor Nate Medlong. Hi, Nate. Hi, Nick. Glad to be here. Good to have you. So I can't, I'm really excited for you guys to meet Nate Medlong and to hear about some of his ministry. Nate, maybe just give our listeners a brief uh, rundown, just a couple sentences, who you are, what you do, and maybe even just a few words about our relationship. Yeah, my name is Nate Medlong. I'm from originally from Cleveland, Ohio. I've been a missionary in uh, Kharkiv, Eastern Ukraine for 16 years now. I'm the head pastor of a small cover chapel there, but one of the things my wife and I have for years have been involved in orphanage ministry, and over the years we've adopted or fostered four girls that were older girls, and we have two biological kids also. And I've known you, I think I met you in Hungary briefly, I met you one time at a conference for a minute. It was 2011, 2012. Somewhere around there. But we got to know each other when you started coming over to do trainings with our Calvary Chapel Ukraine National Leadership Conferences and just seeing the similar vision and my connection to your church because my Aunt Kay, hi Kay if you're listening by the way, she was a part of this church for many, many years until she moved away recently and so there was this kind of connection but through that I'm really glad that we become really good friends and I think our wife's 
joke that we talk to each other sometimes more than them. But um. yeah, that's right. Yeah, Kay moved from Boulder to Cleveland, which I think that was the day when hell froze over and pigs flew because I don't think anyone's ever moved from Boulder to Cleveland before. Yeah, well, it seems like. Uh, do a lot of people move to Cleveland? I guess. I don't know. I, I left Cleveland. I mean, I love Cleveland, but it's I It's a moved good away. place to be from, right? It's a great place to be from. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, okay, I've never been to Cleveland. Dad, to my dad, if you're listening, I'm very sorry. I love Cleveland. I'm, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Cleveland's kind of like the Ukraine of the United States. By what you mean, amazing but underrated? Yes. Okay, fair enough. Actually, I think that's a great point there. I've Actually, heard. Ukraine's a lot like, to me, that's why I fell at home in Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, kind of post-industrial type type thing. You know, the funny thing about Cleveland is I know that there's a lot of Eastern Europeans there. And there's a saying in Hungary that the largest Hungarian cities are in this order, Budapest, Bucharest, and Cleveland. Yeah, there's... Uh- that was actually one thing I think prepared me for missions because Cleveland is just a big blue collar immigrant city. Like we have parts of the town that are called Hungarian village, there's Slavic village, there's Polish village, there's Ukrainian village. It's just little parts of the city. And yeah, it's, it was one thing that really got me used to the idea of multicultural ministry because it's such a multicultural city. You're almost making me want to go to Cleveland. Would you describe it as a suburb of Pittsburgh or of Buffalo? I'm going to cut you. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's get down to business. Dude, like, this has guys, nothing- I think isn't Boulder and like Longwell, like a suburb of Salt Lake city or something, something like that. Yeah. yeah. I've I never just heard think of I see more Lake Mormons city, here. But, I was kind of surprised. Okay. So uh, it's funny. I had Kellen Criswell on here and I gave him a, a hard time about, uh, about Utah. Cause we, we have this oh, kind of Utah, yeah. rivalry between Colorado and Utah. Cause there's this thing where they put on their license plates. It says like, world's greatest snow or something like that. And here's my opinion. Writing something like that on your license plate is kind of like telling someone that you're a leader or a lady. If you have to tell them, then you're probably not one. It's like world's greatest cup of coffee. <laughs> yes, it's, that's it's, exactly. Yeah. Congratulations. What is this, a crappy cup of coffee? <laughs> no, it's the world's greatest cup of coffee. Sorry. So Nate, that's great. I appreciate our friendship. And you know, one thing we have in common is adoption because mm-hmm. as you mentioned, you've adopted four kids out of foster care. And we also adopted a child out of foster care. He's now an adult. And by the time this comes out, he'll be married. And, you know, I, I feel like I learned a lot of things through that process. We had a very positive experience. I know not everybody does, but we also have some members of our church who have adopted, not because they couldn't have children biologically, but they adopted because they believe that adoption is a picture of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And I know of at least two passages off the top of my head where the word adoption is used in the New Testament. And so I want to ask you this, how is adoption a picture of the gospel? Ephesians 1 tells us that we were adopted. You know, in love we were adopted. And that's the picture. We were born broken and lost and Jesus came to save us and invited us into his family. And, you know, just like my kids had a decision to make when I said, Hey, do you want to become part of my family? They Mm -hmm. had a decision to make. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's days where they're like, I wish I wasn't like, well, you made a decision. And sometimes we have that with God, I think, but I just see the picture of we're broken. We're not perfect. We don't bring anything to the table when it comes to, our salvation. Mm. 
Mm. And God knew that. And he still loved us. There's something about it. He just decided to love us knowing that we're going to give him headaches, knowing we bring all our baggage, all our trauma to him. But he, he still died for us. He still chose and he still sticks it out with us. And yeah, I, I just, to me, it's just amazing how much God loves me. I've seen that as like, I'm not God, right? I'm not my kid's savior. I'm not, but he's my savior and I want my kids to see that he's their savior. But what has been interesting is I know how I feel about my kids when they're angry with me, you know, any teenager, whether it's adopted or not goes through the phase where they're saying, I hate you. I wish I wasn't in this family, whatever. I probably said it to my mom once or twice, but, and it breaks your heart, but it's because it doesn't stop your love. And, and the Lord's like, see that that's how I feel about you. You know, you, when you fail, sometimes we can get this in our head. Like when we sin or we kind of backslide a little bit, we think, well, maybe that's it. God's going to put me on the bench. He doesn't want to spend time with me. He doesn't love me. I need to kind of like come back to him, but I need to kind of sit in the sit, you know, sit in the pew for a while not do anything. You know, I, I haven't earned the right to be in the presence of God. And I think sometimes we get that mentality and I'll say with my kids, um, like I have two kids not walking with the Lord today and they don't live with us. And Every time I think of him, all I want is to have close relationship with him again. Mm. You know, I don't need them to prove this big thing to me. I want, I just want to see their heart. I want them to want, to, to want to have a relationship. And I think like that is God. It tells me that's his heart for me. Mm. Like he chose me. He knew, he knew he was getting, and I get so in my head, like I have to rear it when I fail. I have to rear in his attention and, and he's like, no, like the way you feel about your kids, I feel 10, million times stronger about you. Mm. In Romans chapter eight, the very famous chapter is just like chock full of so many valuable, important, encouraging and inspiring truths. Um, Paul essentially says this. So he's in Romans seven, he's been talking about how, you know, this battle with the flesh and the things that I don't want to do. I still find myself doing. And he says, wretched man, who will save me from this body of death? And then he says, but thanks be to God, right? Because in Jesus Christ, he sent me the savior to do for me what I couldn't do for myself. And he says in chapter eight, therefore there's now no condemnation. And he goes on to say that Jesus has fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf. That's verse four. I think personally, just a side note, one of the most overlooked verses in the whole chapter. Super important. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf, which is cool. So then essentially what he's saying is it's almost as if he's bringing us into the courtroom and there's this divine court setting and it's a criminal case. All people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death and we're on trial. And no matter how hard we try, we're unable to be good enough. And it is as if the judge himself comes down from the bench and acts as our advocate and pays the price for our, our penalty and for our freedom, redeems us by taking the judgment himself. And then here's what Paul does. He says in verse 
15 of chapter 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Okay, so it's essentially saying this. Not only does the judge come and take our place in this criminal hearing, right, a criminal court case, but then he says, and I've got a surprise for you, bangs his gavel again and says, since we're already in court, this isn't just going to be a criminal court case. This is now going to be a different kind of court case, an adoption hearing where I am not just releasing you from the punishment that you deserve, but I am actually adopting you as my child. And as my child, you will get an inheritance along with my son, my only begotten son, Jesus. That's a really beautiful and powerful thing. And I remember when we adopted our son, Balaj, we had to do it twice, actually. We had to do it once in Hungary. And then when we moved here to the U.S., we had to redo it. And um, I remember here in the U.S., we did it in a local county courthouse around here. And the judge kind of pulled my wife and I aside as part of the hearing and said, now you understand that if you adopt this boy... He will be a full heir. There will be no difference legally between him and your biological kids. He was just making sure we understood that. Like, he is an heir, and he has all the rights and privileges of a biological child. And, you know, you mentioned something just a minute ago, that the difference with adopted kids is that you are choosing to place your love upon them, even though you don't have to. What would you say is the... What, what would you say is different when it comes to parenting adopted kids versus parenting biological kids? Oh, that's a good question. I think that, well, they have a lot of trauma. And because of that trauma, because they've been abandoned, whether it's they've been abandoned or someone died, and there's a lot of people they thought they trust. You know, every time they bond with like a teacher or they bond with a, a caregiver, you know, they get moved around or whatever, is is convincing them that they belong, that they're loved. And that's, and it's been interesting to watch with some of my kids and especially the oldest kid we ever took to be in our family. Well, she was 19 when she started to live with us, but she, she was just finishing ninth grade. She just finished ninth grade. And, but then we had a 15 year old and two different 11 year olds. It took years to to get them to the place where they felt safe and they knew they were going to be abandoned. Like what you said about the full rights and heirs. And I've heard this story when Rome, when they were adopted, that you could disown your biological child, mm. but you legally could not disown some of you adopted. Like you couldn't disown them as an heir. It was like so permanent. And I don't know if it's true, but that's what I've heard a lot of times. And I share that with my kids a lot of times. I said like, you're my kid forever. And, you know, they kept saying, well, you know, there's this, I, this struggle they had, you know, have had sometimes this doubt, like, can this person love me as much as they love this kid that was born? You know, and we know the fact is if every adult naturally perfectly loved their kid, there would be no orphanages. There would be no friends <laughs> or almost none. And for me, the challenge is like, it's almost like more work you got to put in. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like, you think about like for me when I was trying to convince my wife that I loved her and I wanted that, that I was worthy to marry, you know, it's like that, but constant, like 
convincing them that they're loved, that they, they're loved, but that they can trust in our love, you know, and we're not perfect, but we realize we're modeling Christ to them. And it is, it is a challenge because then whenever there's, the enemy wants to put that doubt in their head, well, no, nobody, this person can't really love me. This person can't really love me. They're going to give up on me like everybody else. And for us, even in that, we have to keep pointing to Jesus. And, you know, we say like, the only reason I can love you is because Christ loved me because he adopted me. Mm-hmm. And so all I'm is, is reflecting that to you. And, but when you, when they finally see that, when they finally get that, it's amazing. And the more amazing thing is not just that they learn to trust our love. It's through that they learn to trust the love of Jesus. Mm, amazing. And you know, some of my kids, I've started to see that and it's amazing. That's, that's me, the more goals that they, they trust him more than they trust me. Mm. So just thinking through that, how parenting adopted kids is different than parenting biological kids in a few ways. What do you think this teaches us? What have you learned about the heart of God and the gospel by being an adoptive parent? Well, you learn that God is very patient Mm. and I think the biggest thing for me is we can't do anything apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the most amazing thing is, you know, we can know everything. We can have our theology right we can know all the right things in our head, but without that power to walk as Christians, without the power to love, we can't, we can't do it. It's not enough to have head knowledge. And I just tell people that all the years as a pastor, all the years in cross-cultural ministry was just like training wheels for the ministry we do with these kids. Wow. And yeah, it's, it's, you need the Holy Spirit and you need to, keep the gospel centered that it's not about works. It's not about things, me earning favor and modeling that to my kids. You know, obviously you want to show them standards and things like that, but also understanding that knowing your love, knowing you're accepted, knowing that someone died for you, motivates you to do the right thing, motivates you to want to live as a Christian and modeling that for our kids is like understanding. It's not following my rules. It's about them understanding that their love they received and that should free them mm. to live a life for Christ. That's really good. You know, I remember just thinking through this. I've heard people say so many times, oh, I just want to do ministry. I want to have an impact. And I always just come back to the idea of like, if you want to change just one person's life, I mean, this is this is a way you can change somebody's life and, mm-hmm. and truly minister to this person. But I mean, it's a huge responsibility. It's a, it, it will change your life. Mm-hmm. There's sacrifice involved, but again, it's that idea that is it worth it? And I mean, the message of the gospel is that, you know, was it a sacrifice for God to, to make us his children? Uh, yeah. Like a massive sacrifice for God to do that for us. Um, but was it worth it? And that's what it says there in Hebrews chapter 12, right? That in his opinion, it was worth it for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross and suffered the shame. And, you know, just, I, I think that that's really important to think about. And I would encourage people to pray about that. There are more kids out there who need a home than there are homes for the kids. And historically, Christians have led the way when it comes to adoption. I'm sure you're familiar with some of these stories about the abandoned babies in Rome. Yeah, absolutely. I just, you know, 
we're writing a book right now. We've been talking about it a little bit and it'll be coming out soon. I'm sure our listeners will hear more about it soon, but in there, I actually cite some of the historical documents that talk about how infanticide was a very common practice in ancient Greco-Roman society. And the early Christians, because of their belief in the inherent dignity of people, but also the, 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 the fact that we're created in the image of God, gives us value and worth, even if we have disabilities. And remember, they would kill babies just because they were female. And so the Christians would go to the trash heaps in the forests and they would gather up these little babies and raise them as their own. And Christian missionaries throughout history have practiced adoption. Mary Slessor was in Nigeria. And what she would do is in Nigeria, modern day Nigeria, there was, uh, they had a practice of killing twins. Oh, okay. Twins. And the reason is they thought that twins were possessed. And, and what's, what's really sad about that is that the highest percentage in the world of twins are born in that region of Nigeria. So it was fairly common and they would also kill the children because they believed that they were demonically possessed or demonically influenced. So Mary Slicer came and she just started adopting these kids. She said, don't kill them. I'll take them. And she started raising them. And not only did it change those children's lives, but ultimately led to a change in that culture. It's a very beautiful thing. But again, inspired by the gospel, we have been adopted by God. And to live out the gospel means valuing and also even taking that full step of adopting. Yeah, I think I think it's a huge need. And I, I'll be honest, I don't know that everybody can do it. Yeah. If you're thinking you're just going to be some like superhero savior and everyone's going to be like Disney happily ever after, it's not true. It's, it's very hard, but you know, I think we see, we have a great example in the Bible of, of somebody that raised a child that wasn't his biological child. You know, that was a big example for me when God spoke to my heart about it was, you know, was Joseph. Joseph for me He's like one of the most underrated characters in the Bible. It's like, I, it's like he's almost like an extra in like mm-hmm. a movie. Yeah, you know where he's just this background character that's just filling space. You know, it's like those people that are sitting pretending to drink coffee in the background, yeah. like pretending to talk, but they don't have anything. You don't see much about him, you know. But he was an important person because he was entrusted to do something that was very countercultural, that actually might have brought shame on him. And in a way might have even kind of in the culture might have even attacked his masculinity. Maybe Mm. some would say like, Oh, you're raising this kid. That's not yours, whatever. But God gave him something to do. That was a sacrifice. And he was, you know, he was faithful. He, his job was to make sure that Mary got was, was taken care of. Jesus was born. God spoke to Joseph. He didn't speak to Mary when, when Herod wanted to kill the babies. No, he said, you go and you get out of here. And then he says, okay, you come back. And then he says, okay, now you come back, but don't go to this town, go over here. And so all these things was, was God entrusted him to, well, he, first he was the one that named Jesus. Mm. He said, you're the name. He say, you know, he says, you name him Jesus. You, you give him that name, which, you know, names in Hebrew culture, talk a lot about your bestowing character about on them really. And so 
God, I mean, obviously the name came from God, you know, and Gabriel gave it to, the angel gave it to, to Joseph. He's like, your job is to give him a name. And I think for me, as a dad, the Lord spoke to me and says, your job is to influence the character of these kids to, you know, you can give somebody a name like, like you can give somebody a name like Victor and they lose at every sport. You know what I mean? Oh, like, I you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, you can give somebody a name and they don't live up to it, but, and obviously someone has to live up to their name, but as dads, I think it's our job, whether it's our biological kids or non-biological kids, like is to influence, is to seek to influence their character, to build into them, to speak character into their life. Obviously we have to model it. And so that was the first thing he did. The second was take care of Jesus's mom, mm-hmm. you know, but then keep him safe and provide an environment where he could be raised. And that was for me, like, I can't make these kids become Christians. I can't just like I can't make my biological kids become Christians, you know, but I can do my part to provide an environment where they can see the gospel do my best to protect them what I can from the world, from danger, you know, and speak character into their lives. And so the Lord spoke that to me really strongly before we started taking kids. Is like, this is, this is your role model, role model Joseph. Mm. And, you know, and so like, I'm not the first one that did it. I'm nobody special. You know, Joseph did it. I mean, of course, his child was the savior of the world, you know, but still that might be even, like, how do you discipline the savior of the world? Like you think yeah. he's wrong, you're upset with him, but you know, he's probably right. You know? <laughs> Not probably he is, you know, yeah. anyway, but that to me is, has been one of the brightest pictures to me of, of the practical responsibility of adoption. Cause yeah. life did, wasn't easy. Life got a lot more complicated for Joseph. Absolutely. When he made that decision to raise a kid that wasn't his, but was worth it. Worth it. Yeah. You know, and this is one of those areas where sometimes I hear people be like, you know, they say, oh, you know, theology is so like, just like people in their ivory towers being eggheads and talking about theoretical things. And we just need to like do practicals. I'm like, no, man, theology leads to practice. Yep. And the practice of Christians being involved in adopting actual children comes as a result of our theology. Mm-hmm. So this is a great example of how very incredibly practical theology is and how theology leads to practical actions. Fact is what you believe shapes how you live and then it's reciprocal, right? Meaning that it shapes how you live and then it helps you understand these theological or doctrinal principles in ways that you could not have understood yeah. them otherwise. Absolutely. And, you know, one other thought that I had about another story, and this is the Old Testament example, is is an interesting one. It's the story of 2 Samuel chapter 9, David and Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth, right, son of Jonathan, who is the former king's grandson, King Saul, first king of Israel, his grandson is named Mephibosheth. He is injured in a the lady carrying him trips and falls when he's small, carrying him afraid that David's getting into power and Mephibosheth is going to uh, be targeted. And so Mephibosheth lives his life in fear and hiding that David always wants to kill him. And yet the heart of the king, 
David towards Mephibosheth is one of love for the sake of his father, Jonathan. And so David seeks him out and brings him into his home. And it says that every day he would hobble up to the king's table. And if you think about that, Mephibosheth could literally do nothing for David. David was showing Mephibosheth kindness. And then one of my favorite parts about the whole story is that not only does he bring him into his family, seats him at his table, eats dinner with him every night, but then when David's son Absalom leads a rebellion against David, it's Mephibosheth who is doggedly loyal to David, even when everybody else turns away. Mephibosheth says that he's doggedly loyal. And so like, that's our, that's a great picture of us, right? Like mm-hmm. we are, we have been adopted. We have received God's grace, even though, you know, we could have easily been objects of God's wrath. And yet God has chose to make us objects of his grace and love and mercy and seated us at his table, given us an inheritance and a, a place to belong in his family. And how do we respond to that? the grace of God causes us to be doggedly loyal to him, like to love him. Um, You know, there's verses that talk about that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the love of Christ compels us Mm -hmm. because we are convinced that one died and therefore he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who, are, who for our sakes died and was raised. And I think that when you really understand what it means that we have been adopted in Christ, it makes you like Mephibosheth, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's absolutely. And I don't know. I've learned more about God and his heart for me through this whole process, you know, especially during the hard times. And if it was, I've seen other people who've gotten an adoption, it's all about them. And it's this idea of like, we're just, you know, it's like a Disney princess fairy tale thing. And then when it, the hard times come, you see marriages fall apart. You see kids get worse. You see everything go sideways because their motivation is wrong. Mm-hmm. They want to be the savior. And there's only one savior, yeah. you know? And so when, like you said, when the gospel and our theology plays out in our lives and, and it goes into us and then it comes out of us, then there's a chance it can work, you know, because mm. it's not about us. It's about him. Mm. You know, people are like, well, I don't know about if I want to have more kids. I'm like, it's not even, that's not even the real question. I mean, the real question is like, do these kids need parents? Mm-hmm. And the question is, does God want to use us that way? You know? I, uh, I remember when I went to the class, we had to take a class in Hungary to adopt. We might have had to do the same. Yeah. And so it was like a, I think a two or three day course that we had to attend. And most of the parents in there who were attending the class were attending because they were unable to have kids biologically. Mm-hmm. There were one or two people in there, you know, cause they asked us all, we were sitting in a circle who, why are you wanting to adopt? And I remember one or two other couples saying, we want to adopt because we want to help a child. And oftentimes, I think in the other two cases, other than my wife and I, it was because those people themselves, one of the couple had been adopted as a child and now they wanted to do that for someone else. And I mean, that's a great picture of what we just talked about as well. Mm -hmm. But it really struck me that for many of the people doing it, they were essentially adopting 
and I, I don't want to be judgmental. Maybe I am. So I, if I am, forgive me, please. But it seemed almost like it was more about them. Like they wanted to be parents more than they wanted to help a child who needed parents. And, and that's something that I would always encourage people in is like, if you get to the place where you're praying about adopting, and I think this actually applies to biological children as well, make sure you get to the point where you understand that parenting and adopting is more about the fact that that child needs love, that child needs care, more than the fact that you need to fill something that is missing in your life. Yeah. That's it, why. Go ahead. Yeah, because then basically you're turning that child into an idol. Yeah. And you're, and then, you know, you see, I've seen, you know, parents, they put all their dreams, all their hopes into this kid and they run away from it because it's like. Yeah. It's, Here, it's, carry this burden. Yeah. And it's of fulfilling me. And they're like, I gave all these things for you. And you really, it's like, no, it's about you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Is there benefits to me? Yeah, I, you know, it, I love having kids. I love having five daughters and a son. I love, I love those times. You know, I'm here right now. I'm gonna, I, you know, some of them I haven't seen in a couple of days, and they're all gonna give me hugs. They don't really hug a lot. They're teenagers. They're too cool for that. But when I'm gone and I come back, they love me. <laughs> you know, they hug me and they show it. And but it's a benefit. But like, because man, if it's about you what are you going to do when their trauma comes out or these different things happen is it's not enough. Your selfish, your selfishness isn't enough to, mm. to carry you. Mm. And you know, that's where understanding that you've been adopted. Yeah. Right. Like when you get the gospel and you understand that and you find your fulfillment in your relationship with God, then you actually, your cup is able to overflow. Right. And then you're able to actually give from the abundance yeah. as opposed to being like, fill me up, fill me up. Well, I'll tell you what, an interesting thing I was just thinking as we we're talking here that my experience with my kids has actually impacted the way I view people in the church. Mm. And it's, I think it's made me, I hope it's made me more gracious and more patient with people, you know, people are acting out and it's so easy to say, well, this person isn't doing their job or this person isn't doing this or why are they making this dumb decision and be like, well, just whatever. I'm too busy. I'll move on to this other person. If they want to come to church, I'll talk to them. Or if they want to meet with me, I'll meet with them. But when you, I see my kids that are struggling through all their things and you, but you understand the background of why they struggle. I look more at church and I look at people I, and I have, it's like my, my default assumption is that, wow, there's probably something really hard in their life or something that happened. Mm-hmm. And I more want to know the story. Mm-hmm. I want to more more like, how can I help the root issue than just the behavior I see in that moment? And it's I th- I hope it's made me a more compassionate pastor because you know it doesn't mean you excuse everything something somebody does, but it gives you a patience and lets you kind of have the bigger see the bigger picture. And and that's the way like a th- theology affected the decisions we made, and the decisions we make affect the way. I go back and minister in other ways. You know? Absolutely. It's just this big circle, you know? Yeah. It's actually, there's a name for it in theological circles called the hermeneutical spiral. That sounds cool. Yeah. So that it sounds like some sort of like football throwing. It's spiral. like a helix, like a DNA looking helix. Where oh, it's right. Spiraling up because it never, it, so it circles back, but then it goes to another level. Right. So, all right. Yeah. Cool. 
So Nate, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Is there any way that people listening can connect with you or like hear more about your ministry? Uh, I I mainly have just, I mainly use Instagram and Facebook. That's my biggest things. Nate if I mean Nate Medlong, it's pretty easy. There's not a lot. There's only one Nate Medlong in the whole world. So you should be able to find me pretty easy. Are you serious? There's only one? There's only like, well, until my dad started having kids, there was only like a handful of Medlongs in the whole world. Amazing. My dad, I'm one of 11 kids and most of my siblings have a million kids. So we've pretty much repopulated the world with that name, but there's still only one Nate Medlong. So good to know. Okay. Yeah. So Instagram and Facebook are the main ways. Awesome. Thanks so much, Nate. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nate Medlong. Thanks for tuning in and start tuning in every week. That's the plan is to release these episodes weekly. If you haven't yet done so, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would go on your podcast app or platform, whatever you listen to this on and give a rating and review. Five stars is always welcome, but any uh, feedback you give, any review, especially a written review really helps boost us in the algorithm, which helps other people find this content who might be looking for good gospel-centered and theological content that's accessible. So feel free to share this with others and tune in next time. See you then.